You know, it's a funny thing. If there's one thing I talk with nonprofit clients about, it's storytelling. It's foundational to fundraising. It's foundational to building a board filled with confident ambassadors. And it's very often the case that those leaders who cannot tell that clear, compelling story that invites folks to have the opportunity to be part of their organization, that in those cases, there's usually something strategic amiss. So one challenge in building a communications plan for an organization, do they have a clear strategy? The next, do they have clear goals for their communications efforts? And I'll give you a hint. My guest does not consider a quote in an article above the fold in the New York Times to be a goal. He considers it to be a tactic. We have lots to talk about. What is a communications plan? How does it differ from a strategic plan? How do you set smart goals? Do I need a full-time communications director to develop and execute an effective plan? Or can I use an outside PR person? And what if neither of those are options financially? I will no doubt have other questions, and my guest will no doubt have answers. He has lived at the intersection of media strategy, public relations, social change, philanthropy, and the nonprofit sector. If you want the expertise of a CEO who knows about nonprofit communications, I dare you to find a more qualified, engaging, smart, and just plain nice guy. I'm pretty sure you're going to want to take notes. I hope you are not driving. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Ben Wasquita is an accomplished political strategist and communications expert with nearly 20 years of experience working for progressive social change. Since 2017, he has been the CEO of Fenton Communications, a media strategy firm dedicated to social change. Fenton partners with changemakers to develop ideas and brands that engage audiences. Fenton blends technical and creative skills with the passion and sector expertise to help clients achieve greater impact. He previously served as an executive vice president at Berlin Rosen Public Affairs, where he built the firm's philanthropy and cultural activism practice. There, Ben counseled many of the nation's leading foundations and advocacy organizations on messaging and communication strategy before Berlin Rosen. Ben was with the Atlantic Philanthropies, where he developed capacity-building programs, provided crisis communications, support for a portfolio of grantees working on health care reform, immigration, and social security. I like that he began his career as an organizer for the Sierra Club, winning a long-shot campaign to preserve more than 6,000 acres of pristine Maryland wilderness. He is a member of the board of directors of the Stonewall Community Foundation and lives here on New York's Lower East Side with his partner, composer Nico Muley, and their dog, Oscar. I've met Oscar. He's swell. Ben, our listeners are very lucky indeed to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you, Joan. Nice to be here. They're lucky to have you. So let's start with the basics, Ben. Yes. Why is communications important to a nonprofit organization? Well, communications is important for a couple of reasons. I think the thing that I believe is most fundamental about communications is that all of the nonprofits that you work with and I work with and that uh, your listeners work for are working in the service of some kind of a cause or issue that is probably poorly understood, undercovered, underreported, underfunded, and needs attention. And there's a lot of words, <laughs> a lot of, you use the word under a lot. A lot of under, under, 
Under, under. But uh, so what I see as the most important thing you talked about storytelling before, I think what's fundamental to me about communications, especially for nonprofits, is that uh, nobody else is going to tell our story for us. Nobody else is going to advocate for our causes for us. And we need to do it ourselves and do it well. So we talk about this communications plan, and I'm going to guess that a lot of listeners don't actually have a communications plan. They think about ways in which their organization could garner visibility based on certain things that are happening, based on certain news hooks in the media, based on initiatives, based on their upcoming gala, and they think of it rather piecemeal. I'm presuming that a plan puts all of those pieces together. But can you talk more about the overview of what a communications plan does for an organization? And then I'm going to ask you to talk about sort of the elements of it. Great. So I think what a lot of organizations struggle with is kind of lurching from tactic to tactic when it comes to communications. So your board member sees an article in the New York Times about another organization and calls you and says, I want that. I need or, that. Or why were you not quoted in well, that? Right. I'm sorry. Why were they quoted and not us? Right. Or someone sees something on the news, on uh, the Today Show, and thinks that that should be you. Or uh, there's a particular uh, grant or a program you're trying to raise money for, and there's suddenly an idea that if you could just get one little press hit on something, that that's going to make all of the difference. And all of these are perhaps well-intentioned, but I think what you see is a lot of lurching and a lot of uncertainty about what actually makes a real strategic communications plan. So... To me, when I think of a communications plan, it, it's, you know, it could be shrouded in mystery, I think, maybe, for all, or nobody would be listening now for a lot of your <laughs> listeners. But, you know, really, it could be a page. It could be two pages. It could be four pages. It doesn't need to be some uh, enormous document. It could be a chart. Uh, I think simply enough, though, there has to be some intentionality between who your audiences are, what you want to say to them, and then how you're trying to reach them. That's really it, is some kind of a roadmap to who your audiences are, what you want to share with them, and how you reach them. I guess I find with my nonprofit clients that one of the hardest things for them to do is to prioritize. And this finds its way both through programs, through every aspect of an organization. But I find it specifically challenging for nonprofits when it comes to communications because they think they can spread this one message across all these different audiences, or they are reluctant to prioritize which audiences are more important than others. And I wonder if you are thinking about a communications plan where you're talking about figure out who your audience is, figure out what you wanna tell them, and figure out how you're going to tell them that, it presumes that you know who you're talking to. Right. So how does a nonprofit, when you work with a nonprofit client here at Fenton, how do you help them to think about the word audience? Yeah, you know, I think there's an aspect of my job, which is, you know, there's a little bit of therapist to it because uh, communications in a lot of cases is about forcing yourself and forcing your organization to make some decisions. So... When I think about, uh, and these are not Fenton clients, when I think of some horror stories, I had a client once who told me that their audience was the entire human race. <laughs> uh, 
I asked a client once what they were trying to... Wait, I need to stop you because I suspect there are people who are sitting there going, but but yeah, I want to talk to everybody. But you can't. It's too expensive and too time-consuming. Um, people think that, you know, one thing that we preach over and over again is that the general public is not an audience. The general public is may contain your audience, but, but you need to narrow it down. You know, I had another... Uh, client a few years ago, uh, and I was trying to press them on what their uh, what their main message was. They wanted to get across to an audience, and what uh, the client told me was that we don't want to answer the question; we want to dance inside the questions. And that was also something that was just untenable for a communications plan because you have to make some choices. So. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into how we do it, but you know the hard part again about doing strong, effective communications is that you need to make some clear choices, and it's exciting. That's where you decide this is my audience, this is what they want, and I'm going to go for it. Here are the tactics. But I, you need to make clear choices that are strong. So, how do you advise a client when they say the whole human race? What are some of the strategies you employ that maybe our listeners could use for themselves right. to think about? prioritization or, or segmentation of audience? Uh-huh. So, you know, what I use over and over again is, uh, and this is fundamental, not just to doing a communications plan, but uh, doing messaging work, is an audience mapping exercise. So you list out all of your audiences, and then with each of them, you ask a few questions, right? What do they want from us? What do we want from them? Uh, what are the obstacles to giving them what they want? What are the ways that we communicate with them and what are the ways that they're receiving information? How are they being communicated with? And it's, it's pretty straightforward. And I think that what you do is if you go through a few audiences, what you start to see are some trends emerging where there's particular messages that are resonating with a couple of audiences. There's particular kinds of tactics that are uh, coming up again and again. And then that starts to narrow things down. The hard part, though, is that, you know, to some extent deciding who your main audience is, is kind of a judgment call. So I think it goes back to what your priority is that you want and need from the audience. So a lot of people struggle with, are donors my audience? Are people who we want to influence in an advocacy setting, are they our audience? What we try and do with our clients is get them to narrow down the general public into some kind of a subset, right? Do you want to communicate with your base? So people that you know are kind of with you, but they're not engaged enough. Do you want to communicate with a new or emerging audience? So that might be, you know, people who are reading my information are 25 to 40 progressive women, and I want to communicate with college students. And so that's a growth audience. And so then you focus your tactics on that. So I think that is part of how we try and push a decision is to understand where the growth is and what, what your goals are relative to your audience. So talk a little bit for me about this issue of goals. Are there different goals for different audiences? How does that work? So there are different goals for different audiences. I think that for your donors, obviously, you want them to donate. Um, And I think what you need to unpack there in a communications context is why. Why do they care about you? What's interesting about you? What's compelling? If you're an advocacy organization, you're pushing some sort of a issue or cause forward, again, I think what you need to decide there is what your call to action is. Do you want people to become a member? Do you want people to tweet? Do you want people to sign a petition? Uh, So I think that 
those are different kinds of goals that come back to you know, what your program is, right? If you're running a campaign to pass a bill, then you need a certain number of people who are going to call their representative, who are going to share that information on social media, et cetera. So you want to work towards that goal. If you're trying to raise a million dollars for your capital project, uh, I guess that's not a big, it's a, it's a good size, um, medium-sized building. Uh, if you're trying to raise a million dollars for your capital project, that's a different kind of goal. But basically, with any audience that you are trying to communicate with, it, it should be pretty straightforward to, to figure out what is it that I want from them and how do I engage them in that? I find that a lot of nonprofits have trouble with an overriding message, that they can have a particular message to a particular audience, but they have trouble with that sort of umbrella message because they do, I often find that they can tell you about the list of activities that they're engaged in, but they have a hard time with that overriding message. And I don't know, I don't know if that ties in with brand, mm -hmm. um, but like I feel like part of the challenge when people developing communications plans is that they don't have an overriding message. Am I right or am I wrong about that? I think you're right. I think that people want to want to adapt what you're saying uh, and what, what you're communicating wildly depending on who you're talking to, right? It's kind of instinct if you're talking to uh, a donor versus if you're talking to somebody on the street versus the elevator pitch, as we say, or, you know, somebody who might partner with you. It's natural to want to do that. Again, the reality is that we have to put out a website. We have to put out a press release. We have to put an advertisement together, what have you. And so you need to, to boil it down. And I think that, you know, what we usually encourage is that there is an overarching message that you want to communicate about your work. I think it should be something that's aspirational or, you know, in this political climate, it's not always aspirational, but at least has some intensity and power to it. So I think you want to communicate something big and important about your work. And within different audiences, you can tweak that a little bit. There's always a second sentence, right? If your first, your first sentence is your overarching powerful message, you can tailor that to people. But I think, you know, what's, what's going to serve most organizations best, especially with all of the competition and, and noise at this point uh, in time, is, is a clear overarching message. I'm often struck when I work with clients on um, strategy work that these things tie together in pretty yep. intrinsic ways. The strategy, the strategic plan, and the communications plan. And when you work with a client, does a communications plan, do people mistake the two of them? That's one question. Yes. <laughs> um, and can you do a communications plan for an organization that is not clear on its strategy? So. How do, how do they get commingled, and can you have one without the other? Yeah, I, you know, if you, um, if you don't have a strategy, a strategic plan, goals for the organization, programmatic goals, there's really no point in communicating. I mean, that's, uh, I guess, existential, <laughs> it's a depressing thought, but why are you <laughs> communicating if it's not in the service of something? We're, you know, then, then we're just kind of rooting around in the barn. Uh, so I, I think that... You know, one thing that came to mind when you were asking me the question, you know, we have a lot of people who, you know, I'll meet with someone's communications director, development director, and they'll say, my executive director wants to be a thought leader. And we'll say, well, what, are, what do they think? 
And you'd be surprised how many people actually don't have an answer or there isn't a thought. Uh, and, or there are too many thoughts. So there's a lot of thoughts. And I think that that's symptomatic to me of the issue that you raise, which is that, uh, you know, if you're going to do, you know, communications plan is communications in service of your program, right? So, again, that's why I want to be on the New York Times front page. That's not really a strategic goal, right? If it's... I want to be in a Paul Sullivan Wealth Matters column in the business section on Sunday because it's going to drive donors to this big uh, fundraising push we're doing. That That's something that starts to make a little more sense in terms of what your goal is. But uh, yeah, you need to have some kind of a program. You know, I come out of some of my work has been in politics and that's that's pretty straightforward, right? You want somebody to vote for your candidate. And I think it's a fairly disgusting, dirty field, but it's also about <laughs> as pure as it gets, which is, you know, I want these people to be convinced that they should vote for me. And uh-huh. there's, that's, that's pretty straightforward. I think for, you know, for a lot of nonprofits, the, the challenge is really finding um, that clear programmatic set of goals that you want to communicate about. I'm working with a, a client at the moment. And this is symptomatic of what I see quite often, is a almost a reluctance to grab onto a message because it doesn't incorporate absolutely everything they do. Right. So this particular client trains teachers' aides mm-hmm. who are generally underutilized assets in New York City public schools mm-hmm. to um, engage in one-on-one interventions with students who are well below average in terms of literacy. Now, I get that. That makes sense. Wow, I've got these people in schools Mm -hmm. and they're underutilized and I'm giving them training, I'm empowering them, I'm helping kids, I'm changing the literacy rates in those schools. That said, there are many other things this organization does. And so if I want to get somebody at hello with this organization, I might want to lead with that message because that one... I, yeah, like, I yeah. totally resonates. Does that mean that I'm that I'm selling short the other things I'm doing? Does that mean I shouldn't be doing the other things I'm doing? Sort of how does a can you p- make a particular message prominent? Yeah, I you know I think that's what is tip of the spear, foot in the door, whatever the phrase or expression is. I mean, to me, as you're talking, I'm thinking in terms of messages, right? Like, you know, teachers' aides can make the difference in literacy. Right. Teachers' aides are heroes in New York City helping kids to read. I mean, I think there's a door opener. And, you know, the organization that is really behind this work supporting teachers' aides and giving them what they need to do this work is, you know, JoanGary.org. And you should support that organization. So I think that if there is something that is strong, compelling, programmatic work, you know, the challenge that you have is that. Uh, if you're dealing with a large social service organization, I just lost, you just fell asleep already while I was talking. If you're dealing with a large social service organization that works across multiple I did not sectors and issue areas, you know, then um, there will be institutional pressure not just to talk about the teacher's aides. And yes. then, you know, then I think you need to, if it's, if it's impossible to be that direct and you need to talk about, you know, Joan Gary, the Joan Gary Center is a, 
nonprofit that helps kids across New York City. You know, right now, Joan Gary Nonprofit Center is doing incredible work with teachers' aides. You, you pivot to that quickly, and I think that's a way that, you know, if you can't lead with some really strong point about what the work is because there's too many programs, then you can bring that in right after. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, so let's talk about the vehicles. Yeah. I also am curious about whether or not uh, press releases have become dinosaurs because I feel like I, I teach at the Annenberg School and I teach nonprofit yeah. communication strategy and they're always dying to learn how to write a good press release. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, are they really going to need that? Well, you know, I still, as a writing test, make our, you know, if you're applying for a job here, you still have to write a press release. But uh, that's mostly, I think, just uh, cruelty and a, a wicked <laughs> editing pen on our part. You know, the... Really, like in the weeds, the actual most effective vehicle to uh, get press coverage is a a really well-written, thoughtful pitch email that's very customized to a reporter that hopefully you have some relationship with or you can establish some relationship. You need to hit the phones. You need to make follow-up calls. But, yeah, you know, a press release is pretty dead as a tactic. Um, So... You know, I think that there's, uh, you know, we I'm glad to talk about the laundry list of all kinds of things, but the, the press release is mostly dead. You know, one thing that we, this is like uh, free advice I shouldn't give away, but mo- one of the things that we, <laughs> um, you know, we get asked a lot a question about impressions. How many impressions did a press release get? And that just means how many possible viewers across all of the outlets that something was placed on saw it. And... It doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean anybody engaged with it or encountered the article. You know, we still send things out on PR Newswire or CSR Wire. And, you know, sometimes that's because an organization wants to create a a paper trail, essentially. They want to plant a, a Google flag in the ground that they've made an announcement. But generally, they're high dollar, low, low return. The ROI is pretty low on those. So... You know, I generally find a press release to be a pretty dead art. That said, the one, the exception to that, because so many people think a press release now is pointless and dead, uh, when you actually do a press release, it should be for something really important. So there is almost counterintuitively points where you can signal something really has gravity because you're doing a kind of formal, you know, Mad Men style press release out of it. And I think that can work sometimes and it, it can be decent web content, but... Press releases are mostly dead. You want to talk a little bit about um, digital tactics yeah. and how they can benefit an organization? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the the current media landscape, right, is there's a kind of perception, I guess, you know, journalism's dying, print is drying, it's fake news, it's all trash, it's, uh, it's bleak. Um, a lot of it is pretty bleak, but uh, I think what I've found is that there's actually more outlets now than ever Uh, in some cases with more specialization covering issues than ever before, right? So when I'm working on something that is uh, about criminal justice or criminal justice reform, there's probably 30, 40 reporters who have some interest in that beat, right? If you're working on something that is about social good or uh, even philanthropy, you know, the, the... the big beat reporters for the the New York Times, you know, they don't they don't cover it in the same way. But there are uh, a lot of different kinds of outlets. So I think that what that means, though, is that 
it's a lot of online. The, the, the online media ecosystem is what's driving a lot of donations, attention, buzz, etc. And so what you want to do is put yourself in a position to have enough content online, be putting out enough uh, news, be putting out enough um, social and, and email content that you're in that ecosystem. And that is increasingly what I find the sort of buzzfeeds of the world are places where if you get lucky and you get the right reporter and you get a good story, you can get 10, 12, 15 million views on a piece about something that before might have, you know, quote unquote, just been in a local newspaper or a, or a national daily with far, few, far fewer viewers. What's the strategy, and we can talk a little bit about staffing in a minute, but what's the strategy? So you, you, I, I imagined being in the shoes of a listener who heard you say, well, you know, got 30, 40 reporters on the criminal justice beat, <laughs> and they're sitting there going, how did he find them? I don't even know how to find them. How do you create... It's one of the biggest assets a nonprofit should have yeah. is a media list of those people who care about your issue. And I wonder, are there steps to take, yeah. even for smaller organizations? I, I mean, I think the single most important thing is to track and log. When you see an article that resonates with you about your work, is to write down the name of the reporter, right? There is nothing that's more effective Again, this is, uh, you know, a lot of shoe leather. Is it shoe leather? Is that the I don't know. Phrase? You're the it's, messaging I don't, I don't guy. Know, I don't the, know. The message guy. <laughs> they, you know, there, God help me. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, ha- buying a media list or media database. Those things are fine. But ultimately, you need to be a real voracious consumer of media in the areas where you're working, right? So if you are working for... Uh, if you're in philanthropy or you're in a foundation, I think, you know, obviously you want to read the Chronicle Philanthropy, you want to read Inside Philanthropy, but you also want to look for when you're reading the Sunday Times or you're reading the Atlantic, you know, you want to look for a writer who seems like, oh, okay, I could see this person maybe taking interest in innovation or trends or social good or philanthropy. I think you want to try and see your own work in the content that you're reading. This is... For those folks who do not, who, who sit here and say, oh, good, uh, sure, Ben, I have plenty of time to read things, but it's a great, great, great gig for an intern, isn't it? Yes. It's, and, and it's the best, it's the best gig for an intern is to just crawl all over the media. Clips and clips and buzzword, buzz, cl- uh, keywords, not keywords, buzzwords, keywords. and Google alerts yeah. and all of those things and start to be, be able to begin to build a nice little database of people you can pitch these stories to, or that you can actually begin to cultivate a relationship. Maybe it's not you're pitching a story. Maybe you're actually yeah. giving them information about something they ought to cover that maybe doesn't have anything to do with you. Because yeah. boy, give a reporter something, right. and they're going to remember that. Yeah, and you know, part of what I kind of um, you know, I have a lot of clients who are are really cross disciplinary, right? Like they don't necessarily fit in a particular beat or another. And, you know, you kind of look for, you know, when I sit down and read the Times, I try and think about, you know, okay, who's, what stories am I seeing that are, they don't fit quite neatly in the box. I think that means you might have a reporter who is uh, open to a broader brush than just what you would normally pitch to them. You know, I also try and look for reporters who may be entertainment or more mainstream reporters, but, but there's something about their writing. Maybe they 
review a film that has a political theme to it or something, what I call kind of stealth progressives, you know, secret, secret radicals inside news organizations. <laughs> um, I used to be a Nation magazine. Uh, at The Nation, I was their um, publicity director for four years. And there's there's like a secret like hit squad of like three, four, five hundred like X Nation interns out there working for, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times. And you kind of get a sense that they have a worldview that they're going to be open to something about social change or ideas or issues or at, le- or at least can help you out. It's kind of a, a way of looking at press that's a little different. I would guess that there are a lot of Huffington Post alums that are there also many. There, out there too. There are many. That's actually is, you know, I, I think, you know, another tactic is taking your content and trying to repurpose it as much as you can. You can't really do that. Huffington Post has sort of changed their yes, model, uh, which is depressing. You know, it used to be that the dumping ground, if, if everybody else rejected your op-ed, you could always go to Huffington Post and then go back and say, oh my God, we got a Huffington Post piece. Uh, the Hill is a good outlet for that now. The Hill has kind of carried forward the Huffington Post banner mm-hmm. as the dumping ground for op-eds you can't place anywhere else that still has an audience to it. Um, Medium is uh, another good site. Um, podcasting, like we're doing now, I think has some opportunities. But you know, if there's a speech at your gala and you can cut off the fluff at the beginning and cut off the fluff at the end and repurpose that speech and put it up on Medium, uh, link it to your site, it can serve as a kind of op-ed or a blog post. So I think that even on on Facebook, you can post most of a you know transcript of a talk or something. So I think that one thing that we're encouraging clients to think about is that all of the content that they're producing, what's what's the most strategic home for it? That's smart. We are talking with Ben Wasquita. He's an accomplished political strategist and communications expert with nearly 20 years of experience working for progressive social change. He is currently the CEO of Fenton Communication, a media strategy firm dedicated to social change. A couple more questions before yeah. we um, before we close out. How long a time should a plan cover? No more than a year, probably six months. Okay, um, just because I, things change so much. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I think of a good communicate, a good communications plan should have a calendar at the end of it, and the calendar should go month by month by month, and you should come back to it and look at it. And I think the first three to six months of a communications plan are pretty easy or straightforward to plot out, right? If you're working on poverty issues, you know that jobs numbers come out the first Friday of every month. You know that there's a certain UN General Assembly week, which is like a nonprofit feeding frenzy. You know, there's these things on the calendar that you can plan around. Up to a year, you can start to plot in some other tactics, but you're going to have to revisit it. Um, you know, anything longer than a year-long communications plan um, is not not really feasible. The thing you can look at on into the future is if you're doing like an ad spend or you know that you're going to buy a billboards or transit ads or something. If you need to budget long term, you can do that. But really, six months is the most that you can really do a detailed communications plan. All right. So now I'm a nonprofit. I've scaled up enough so that I can hire a director of communications. Great. Maybe I have an intern that's going to do all that media list stuff, but I have a pretty solid uh-huh. communications director. What should I expect? 
I get these questions a lot. Okay, yeah. I'm going to bring a, I'm going to bring on a communications director, and it's just going to, it's going to transform our visibility. What's reasonable to expect from a new communications director? Should they have be able to put together, you know, a six month calendar for you in pretty short order? What other kinds of things can you expect? Uh, yeah. So I think if you're going to hire a communications person, you know, when I think of who we hire at Fenton, for instance, you know, you want to look at a few different sectors, right? And you want to be open, I think, to different kinds of people. So, you know, I've had some amazing folks that I've worked with who have been ex-journalists, and I think that's a route. Um, I've had people who have worked for nonprofits or worked in-house, as we say. I've also hired people who've worked at firms or agencies. I think all of those could be good models. So just to start with who you're looking for, I think you want to be open to you know, a right mix of people, but somebody that you can tell is really going to be able to passionately communicate your core message and the issue that you're working on. So you want to find somebody who really has, you know, the, the fire to talk about teachers' aids and literacy. And, you know, whatever background they come from, you should be open to that. That does mean there will be some blind spots, right? So some people may come in really, really understanding media and press, but they won't know a lot about social or digital or vice versa. I think you can hire somebody who has a largely digital background uh, and they could be a communications director too in this day and age because that's so important and they'll have to fill in some gaps on the media side. You know, that's where training can come in, uh, workshops, skills building, or uh, I'll say in some kind of agency support alongside Uh, As far as what you should expect, I think you should expect somebody to be able to, in pretty short order, put together a six-month plan or a year plan. So that should be the first thing that you do and that you work on with any new communications director. I think if you hand them a plan that's already done, they don't have ownership of it, you want to see what they can do. I think you want to establish a process where they can come up with a plan, here's what I'm going to do, here's what my first six months to a year look like. And they might be the kind of person that would facilitate that conversation you just described earlier about audience mapping. So that might be the person who would sit down with the executive director and Uh a couple of key staff members and maybe a couple of board members and say, hey, if you want a communications plan, we really should do some audience mapping because I need to be able to connect the strategy for the organization with who we want to reach to talk about it. Right. You do want to check the boxes, I think. If there is a board member or a funder who's going to pop up later with a lot of ideas about communications, that's not not always a bad thing. I know, Joan, in your world, you deal with a lot of boundary issues, that right, among Uh uh, boards and staff, but you should talk to them. I, I, I think that that's important If you can do it or your intern can do it, you should do some kind of a media audit of your own organization, right? What's my coverage been for the last six months? You know, sometimes you know, what are my competitors getting, right? Who do we aspire to be? What what does their profile look like? So I think that's a pretty good, you know, it's something that's basically is like a project for, could be a project for an intern even. I mean, you maybe want more sophistication, but I think that's totally reasonable. It seems like like it's fitting to ask this as the last question, which is, how do you know your communications plan is working? And then, and how do you adjust as a result? Well, it's probably the hardest question that we get sometimes. I'm going to answer and then I'm going to evade my own answer, which is <laughs> uh, like a good communications person. I do think you should have goals within a communications plan, right? So... 
On social and digital, for instance, those might be pretty straightforward. They're numeric. We want a certain number of followers. We want a certain number of listeners. We want a certain number of what have you. I think in a media context, you probably want some goals that are, you know, I know that I want some mainstream coverage. I know that I want our executive director writing a piece or two about their philosophy of change or why we're doing our work. I know that we want some local coverage in a certain area that we're working in. And I think that that's important and you should measure against that. So I think you set those goals. If you have enough money, you could do some polling or research before or after. Um, I think the trap, though, that some people fall into, you know, I've seen RFPs that'll say, you know, in the first six months of this engagement, you are expected to get, you know, insert random number, right? 14 hits. And, you know, the thing you want to keep in mind is that the power of one incredible story can far out, it's quality over quantity, right? If you look at the Cameron Todd Willingham New Yorker piece about the death penalty a few years ago, there's really no story that's done more about a single issue, uh, you know, in that, there, there's stories like that that are so defining. Um, so this is easy, Ben. Ben told me to go out and get a New Yorker story, so I'll do it today. <laughs> But, but I do think that there are things that are breakthroughs, right? So your director doing a keynote at one conference versus doing, you know, just showing up at 10 conferences, there can be a case of quality over quantity. So I think you should set goals for yourself, but you should be willing to accept that your 14 op-eds in the Hill are okay, but that the one op-ed in the New York Times is, you know, more meaningful than all of them put together. It's also possible that you could be looking at sort of how how big have you grown your media list, right? right? There are all kinds of different metrics or, oh my gosh, we actually got sought out yes. as a source on a story. That's the first time that's ever happened. And what does that actually say about our presence in the space? That says right. something really big, so it doesn't have to be a lot. Yeah, and, and those goals very much so can be internal, right? It could be, you know, again, we built the media list. We put out a monthly uh, announcement to our email list about recent news from the organization. You know, I think there can be more modest goals. Maybe once a quarter you want your executive director to sit down with someone in the media overall who's working on the issues that you care about or you're working on, and that could be a goal too. So I think it should be relative to where you are. If you're starting from scratch, there's there's a lot of room to grow. So last question, uh, speaking of starting from scratch. Yes. Okay, I've got, I'm a small organization. I've got no communication staff. Now, I will say that, yes, there are boundary issues between board yeah. and staff, but I will, if i got no staff and I'm a small organization, I'll put, I'll, I'll, in, I'll say, go find somebody in communications and PR, and yes. if they're passionate about your organization, recruit them to your board so yes. you have some skill at the table. Yes. Or build a kitchen cabinet, mm-hmm. right? But you don't have to have staff. Right to make a dent in this regard, do you? No, I think that some of the most really incredible work that we've done is training executive directors with no communication staff to do, you know, just no basics of media on their own. And, you know, if you're an executive director of an organization, there's probably going to be no better ambassador for the organization than you. There's no reason that you can't pick up the phone and talk to a reporter about what you're doing. I think similarly, I'm on the board of a community foundation that has no communication staff, and there's a very capable group of board members who are communications professionals, and 
they do press and they engage reporters and they engage uh, you know partners. And that's been incredible for the organization. I think the only thing that is critical about that is that if your board member is a PR media expert, that they're working from some kind of strategy that you've set and agreed to, and they're not just uh, pointing uh, and shooting to try yeah, to get ro- your hits. Roaming, roaming around for something or pushing their own agenda through that, but that they're working from your own goals. So the takeaways, um, a strategy precedes a communications plan. Yes. And a communications plan is something that's about six months to a year, and it uh, looks at overriding goals, it looks at audiences and who you want to reach and how to reach them, and um, there's lots of ways to evaluate them and probably something you should set at the start to say, we're going to look at this over six months and we'll know we're successful at the end of six months if X, Y, and Z. And you should be able to expect that your communications director is going to be able to put together some kind of a plan. And there is hope, even if you do not have the budget for a communications staff member, where you can make a dent, garner visibility, raise some resources, and potentially be able to add that communications staff person. That's right. There you go. So, Ben Mosquita, thank you so much. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, everybody. Yes, thank you so much. So this means either you have to go to work or get off the elliptical machine now, and um, I'm going to let Ben Mosquita get back to his day job, and I'm going to do so with thanks and appreciation to him and to you as well. And remember, you can always join me over at my blog at joangary.com. That's with two R's. And you can learn more about my membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at Nonprofit Leadership Lab. We'll see you next time, and thanks, as always, for everything you do. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.